Hi, this is Rabbi Duvi Ben Shushan from Congregation Magen Abraham, located on East 9th between T and Avenue U. Thank you so much in advance for listening to the following shiur. These weren't ordinary men. These were the greatest men of Israel. Matter of fact, the Torah cries this out. Shalach lecha anashim. Anashim denotes men of great stature, men of greatness. These 12 men were the greatest men of the Jewish people. How is it possible that such great men, the Meraglim, fell to such a grave sin? How great they were! And they fell to one of the biggest sins of history, to the extent that not only did they fall to sin, but they paved the way to all of the Tisha Be'avs for the rest of time. It's because these great men, how great they were, they were plagued with an ulterior motive. What were they so worried about? They were so worried that if they were to come back and tell the Jewish people that Israel, Eretz Yisrael, is the most magnificent land in the world, then the Jewish people get the inspiration to go. And if the Jewish people go into Israel, they're going to lose their job. And because of this incredible ulterior motive of being so worried that they're going to be out of leadership, they're going to lose their power, they're going to lose their job with the people, they chose to come back and give a terrible report. All out of two. Ten Miraglim came back and gave a horrible report. But two, Yoshua, Kalev, came back with the truth. Vihaaretz, Tovahi, Me'od, Me'od, the greatest land in the world. Ladies, I want to ask you a question. Now, how, how do you understand this exactly? Think about it. Here you have the head of the tribes of Israel. Each one is a leader. Each one has great stature. They're the greatest men of the entire generation. What are they worried about? That if you go into Israel, they're going to lose their stature, leadership, and jobs? Why? Yes, I agree that it might be a little bit of a different position because till now they're in the desert, so they're very tribal and everyone is living very close-knit together, tribe by tribe, with their leaders. But once they come into Eretz Yisrael, you know how they're going to settle down. How did they split Eretz Yisrael? They did a goral, they did a lottery, and they split it tribe by tribe, city by city. So in Israel also they're going to be kind of resting in or settling in in the way of tribes. And who is going to be the community leaders of those cities? Obviously, the heads of those tribes. Just like they were the head of the tribe in the desert, they were going to be the head of their tribes in the cities once they rest in Eretz Yisrael. They'll be the community leaders. They'll be the mayors. They'll be the gedolim. Why were they so worried that they're going to lose their leadership? What was the ulterior motive? answers the great Reb Noach Weinberg, Zechit Sadiq Libracha, in amazing insight. He says, no, no, you got it all wrong. That wasn't the ulterior motive. Yes, they were worried about losing their jobs, but not when they got to Israel. They were worried that when they come back and they give the people the report, 
it's at that moment they're going to be ousted from their leadership. Why? You see, there's a great concept. And this is a concept that we in Brooklyn know very well. Chen ha'aretz al yoshveha. People love the place they grew up in. Regardless if the place is really the most amazing place in the world or not, we all love Brooklyn. That's just the way it is. Now, when people come from outside and they come visit us, they say, how could you live here? <laughs> how could you live here? There's no parking. Everybody's on top of each other. Road rage, day in, day. How could you live here? But yet, we love Brooklyn. We wouldn't leave Brooklyn for nothing. Why? Because we grew up here. And when you grow up someplace, you become very connected to the place. And suddenly that place becomes home. The Jewish people, the Jewish people got very comfortable in the desert. For 40 years, they learned a life that was surrounded by Anane HaKavod. They learned a life that they had the man fall on their doorstep every single morning. This was a life that had central heating, central air conditioning. They didn't even have to do their own laundry. The miracles that took place inside the Ananea Kavod were incredible. As every morning they woke up, their laundry was pressed, their clothing was clean and fresh, and they never had to buy more clothing. Because over the years, as they grew, the clothing grew with them. So they became very connected and very comfortable in the desert life. And because of that, ladies, the Jewish people did not want to go into Israel. And that's why the Miraglim knew this. And the Miraglim said to themselves, if we are to be the ones to come back and give the Jewish people the report about Israel, we're going to have to give a speech that nobody wants to hear. That's a very unpopular position to be in. To have to be the one to break the news that nobody wants to hear. Says the Miraglim, oh no. We're not going to lose our jobs over this. We're, we're, we're A number one with the people. We're the leaders of the people. They love us. We're going to jeopardize our leadership. We're going to jeopardize our positions, our jobs. Why? So that we should come back and give a report that nobody wants to hear? We're not going to lose our position. We're not going to lose our jobs over this. We're not going to lose our popularity over this. You know what? Instead of telling the people the truth, we're going to go and tell the people exactly what they want to hear. They want to hear we can't go in? They want to hear that it's better to stay here in the desert and just go on with life? That's exactly what we're going to tell them. We're going to give them a horrible report about Israel. We're going to tell them what their ears want to hear. We're going to play to the tune of the hearts of the people. Like this, we remain popular. Like this, we remain the leaders. Like this, we continue to be the heads of Israel. That, says Reb Noach Weinberg, Zechet Sadiq Lebracha, that was the ulterior motive that blinded them and got them to fall in one of the most terrible sins of history. All 
Miraglim save two. There were two, Yoshua and Kalev, that said no. Our leadership is Lashem Shamaim. Our leadership is not about our popularity. Our leadership is not about our position, nor about our stature. Our leadership is about Hashem and how to bring out the best of the Jewish people. And if that's the case, we are not going to get up and give the speech that the people want to hear. We're going to give, get up and we're going to give the speech that people need to hear, regardless if they're going to hate us for it or not. And that's exactly what they did. They stood up in front of the peoples and they said, Klal Yisrael, listen up well. Vehaaretz, tovahi me'od me'od. It's the best land in the world. It's ours. She belongs to us. It's our destiny. Part of being a Jew is your love for Eretz Yisrael. We can do it. And by the way, ladies, the Miraglim were right. Do you know what happened to Yoshua and Kalev when they got up and they told the truth and they said to the people what they didn't want to hear? They started calling them murderers. Nobody wants to be called a murderer. Nonetheless, this was exactly what took place. Says Reb Noach Weinberg, every rabbi, every leader, and every congregation must study the story of the Miraglim really well. Because this is the story that teaches the essence of leadership l'shem shamayim, as opposed to leadership for your own self-interests, your own popularity, and your own stature. What an amazing concept. And ladies, I want to tell you, from a personal, personal experience of good years, it is not fun to have to be the one to stand up in front of people sometimes and tell them things that you know they don't want to hear. But sometimes you have to look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, who put me up here? What am I doing up here? Is this Lashem Atzmi or is this Lashem Shamay? Yes, don't get me wrong. There are ways to say things to people. Don't get me wrong. It's not that we should go out and be strong worded, willed people to stuff things down the throats of the nation. No, that doesn't work. Definitely not in this generation. Definitely not today. But to simply just avoid important topics that people need to hear for our own growth and our own Avodata Kodesh. Simply just to stay the Mr. Good Guy. Do you know how many times rabbis, and especially myself, was bashed because of certain didashot, certain important points that Klal Yisrael needed to hear? And don't get me wrong, they were sugar-coated, sugar they were softened, they were chocolate-coated, they were put stories, and it was sweetened in the way of, you can sweet things to the best of your wants. But when someone doesn't want to hear something, you walk out the unpopular when you have to be the one to say it. But those are the moments that we separate the men from the boys. Because take a look what took place 
At the end of this amazing story, what came out from these leaders and Yoshua and Kalev? These leaders, the Ten Meraglim, they chose to go the route of popularity. And they, yes, they got up and they gave a great speech and they had the people on their feet rocking. They really moved the people. They got them to cry so hard about the bad report that they said over about Eretz Yisrael, knowing that that's what the people wanted to hear. That Hashem got so angry. And Hashem said, you're crying? Because you're crying a bichiyash al-hinam, a crying for no reason. Tonight, Tisha B'Av, is going to be designated a night for crying and crying and crying for destruction for generations to come. All of that because of the service of their own stature, their own popularity, their own position. What ended up happening to those leaders at the end of time? They used the pulpit for their own service. They forwarded their own careers. And what happened at the end? Where did they go in life? Their final moments. Their own tongues blew up and they ended up choking on their tongues and dying in the Midbar, never to see Eretz Yisrael again, nor to even get inheritance to their children in Eretz Yisrael. It says Borei Olam, you went out and you serviced yourself instead of being L'Shem Shamayim, Lama'an Klal Yisrael and Kedushat Eretz Yisrael, you could have no part of them and you could have no part of it. Whereas when it came to Yoshua and Kalev, who stood up and said truth, they stood up and they said what they believed in and they knew it to be Emet and they knew they were talking about Eretz Yisrael and Klal Yisrael. Yes. They did not give the speech that people wanted to hear. They gave the speech that people needed to hear. What, went, how, what happened with them? Yoshua later on went on to be the Mimale Makom of Moshe Rabbeinu, the next leader of Klal Yisrael, the one that actually is going to lead them into Eretz Yisrael, conquer Eretz Yisrael with Kalev right there by his side. Take a look at what comes out in the difference of leadership, L'Shem Atzmi versus leadership, L'Shem Shammai. So what was that speech that Yoshua and Kalev gave that was unpopular, that they ended up yelling and calling them murderers? The speech was, Ve'aretz tovahi me'od me'od. Eretz Yisrael, she's ours, and she is so magnificent, and she is so beautiful, and she belongs to us. And ladies, on that note, I'd like to share with you just a few minutes of feelings on this idea that she is the most incredible land in the world, and she is ours. And part of being a Jew is a love for Eretz Yisrael. I remember many, some good years ago, before, before Israel built their magnificent airport that today they've built, probably one of the most nicest airports in the entire Europe. But before that, 
Many years back, in the days I used to go back and forth to yeshiva constantly, I went back and forth in those years so many times it felt like a bus ride at the end. But I, I remember those years that when we would land in Ben-Gurion, so, you know, the door would open and the stairs would be rolled right up to the door. And you'd walk down the stairs right onto the pavement of the landing strip that the plane landed on. And you'd have to sit there and wait for Israel's famous or maybe infamous Egged buses to come ripping around 90 miles an hour on two wheels to pick you up with everybody else and bring you over to passport control. And I remember as a Bachor, year after year, for the four and a half years that I learned there as a Bachor, when that door opened and we walked down those steps and we came down onto the ground of Eretz Yisrael, I didn't care who was looking. I got down onto all fours and I kissed the ground again and again. Ah, I'm home! And I can't believe I'm back. And I can't believe I was lucky enough to get back again. And it's very emotional. And believe me, it wasn't just me. Although if it was, that's okay. But it wasn't just me. There were many good men behind me. Who the moment they got off those steps, the moment they stepped down on the ground of Eretz Yisrael, they too dropped to all fours. They too started kissing the ground. They too got very emotional. And believe me when I tell you, you wouldn't believe how many people who came down those steps, religious or not, watching this sight, how much it moved them. And they too got very emotional. And there was a certain cry on the inside that screamed, I'm home. And you have a feeling when you get there of a connection that you don't feel anywhere else in the world. My wife tells my mother-in-law, I love going to Israel. I just hate going with Duvi. He's drunk. When he gets there, he's somebody else. He's singing in the car and he's whistling. And in the streets, he embarrasses us. And that's all right. I want my kids to see it. I want them to feel it. I want them to see what it means to love Eretz Yisrael. What it means that it's our home, that it's our land. This is my kala. Ladies, today is Monday. Do you know what we read this morning in the Yom of Yom Sheni? On the second to third pasuk, we say, Yefenof, misos kol haaretz. She is the beauty of the entire world. She's our beauty. She's our kala. She's our bride. This is our fiancé. And when we come to Eretz Yisrael, and especially to Yerushalayim, it's as if heaven is giving us a wink and all the doors open. And there's such a feeling of a welcoming home like never before. And that's why in truth, I understand where my wife is coming from. When we get out of the airport and we rent the car, and we jump in, and I turn on the music, and I roll down the windows, and I drive to Yerushalayim on Kvish Ahad. She always tells me, you're out of your mind, you're drunk, let me drive. But for the kids to see it, for us to feel it, to understand, like Yoshua said, Vihaaretz, Tovahi, Me'od, Me'od, there's nowhere else in the world like it. 
There's nowhere else that is as beautiful as our Kala, as our bride, as our Yerushalayim, as our Eretz Yisrael. What's amazing is that I know over the years, back and forth, how much of an impression it makes on the kids. And they feel it. They feel it hands down. They feel it too. Going years back, from the first times that I went there with my family on a Pesach, and we spent the Pesach together with my brothers and my parents, and that was a Pesach to remember. When we landed in Ben-Gurion Airport, my Adina was only maybe six or seven years old at the time. And I remember when we landed, so we jumped up like everybody, started grabbing our hand luggage out of the overbins, and then she looks up to me with these two big, beautiful eyes. She says to me, Appa, it's a mistake. This isn't Eretz Yisrael. I said, Adina, what are you talking about? This is Eretz Yisrael. She says, no, no, Abba, this is not Eretz Yisrael. I said, what do you mean? She starts looking out the window and pointing. She says, I don't see Hashem's house. I don't see the Kotel. This is the wrong place. There was a man standing behind us, an older man. He looked like an Israeli man, obviously not so religious, but, but he heard these words from my little daughter. That guy started crying. He looks up to me and he says, look at our children, how pure they are. Look at, they can, even they can feel that there's something here that nowhere else in the world can compare. And what an impression it makes on the kids. And what a Kiddushah. How do you explain to somebody that feeling of Kiddushah? I don't think verbally you can. It's suddenly like something comes over you. And for a moment it grips you. And you feel something of a sensation of a... <sighs> and there's an emptiness inside that suddenly gets filled. That's the best I can do with words. And even that doesn't cut it to describe the feeling of Kiddushah that we feel, and that our kids feel, when we come to Eretz Yisrael, and especially when we come to our Kala, Yerushalayim Erech Kodesh, Yefenof, Mesos Kol Haaretz, how beautiful she is. She's like no other land in the world. And we have to feel that. I remember years back, you know, again, this is quite a few years ago. But in the old days, a ticket to Israel was $5.99. Across the board, no matter who you were flying with. El Al, Delta, United, was always $5.99. And I'm not talking about just the low seasons. I'm talking about even in the decent $5.99 round trip. We used to go, I, here, I'm going to throw you a name now. I hope this doesn't shock you. But once upon a time, there was an airline called... Uh, Tower Air, Aleha Shalom. I, you know, probably you've, I don't know if you heard it or you did. This goes way good, good years ago. We used to go back and forth Tower Air because they were like 515 instead of everybody else. That was 599. But not me. I always went with LL. Why? No, it's not because of the meat uh, programs or the miles. Nah, that, that never attracted me. Every time I try to use one of those miles, something always went wrong on a glitch that for this time, it just, sorry, sir, uh, we can't accept your, you know, so I said, okay, enough. But I went with El Al anyways. 
And people do it because of the security. That's not my security. He's my security. I always went with El Al for a different reason completely. And that was that when we landed in Ben Gurion Airport, they started playing the music. And I'm telling you, don't get the wrong idea over here. No, it wasn't because, uh, oh my gosh, the rabbi is going to become a... Uh, no, no, no. But the music on the landing at that moment, it moved me. They started playing Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. Could you imagine you just landed after a ten and a half hour flight and you're saying to yourself, I'm, gonna, I'm almost there and I'm going to get there. And you're already in your mind planning all the places you're going to go and all the things you're going to do and all the rabbis you're going to see and everything. And you can't wait for that first morning by the Kotel Vatikin. And literally then, boom, you land and everyone finishes clapping and they put on the music. And that moment, it moved, I don't know about you, but me, it moved me to tears. Time, and I can go a hundred times and it wouldn't be different. Because I'm home. Because this is home. What a feeling. We're home. And that's why, ladies, forgive me for being the one to give the Yoshua Kalev speech that nobody wants to hear, but yet the speech that we need to hear. We don't belong here. This is not home. And don't get me wrong, we have a tremendous hakaratatov for the United States. This is a land of chesed. And this is a land that allowed us to finally be able to sprout and be marbitz Torah and Judaism like maybe we haven't known in the last 2,000 years of Galut. And we can build shuls and we can build yeshivot. And no one is persecuting us openly. And no one is hating us openly. And no one's coming after us yet. But nonetheless, yes, we had a renaissance of Torah and Judaism for the last some 70 years. But please forgive me for saying this. This is not home. Ve'ha'aretz tovahi me'od me'od. That's home. That's where we belong. And Bezat Hashem, we're waiting for the Geulah, and maybe sooner, to be able to really make it to the land that we love so much, the land that we call home. I tried to juggle those feelings amongst our guys in the shul. I think it was maybe four years ago. Four years ago, we made a trip for the guys in the shul one summer, and at the end, it was about 20 guys or so that showed up, signed up, and we went out to Eretz Yisrael. Now, we, you know, you have to understand, I was together with these guys since they were 16. Now, they're not 16 anymore. <laughs> now, they have families with kids. They're putting their kids into yeshiva. But we started together very young, and we grew together as a minyan, and then as a shul. But over the years, we always spoke about this. We said, one day we're gonna do it. We're gonna, we're gonna all go to Eretz Yisrael together and wow, what a trip that's gonna be. And it's gonna be something out of this world that we talked about and talked about. There was a lot of, a lot of uh, false alarms, a lot of tries that just never panned out until finally four years ago, it happened. And 20 guys with myself got together and we went in July 
to Eretz Yisrael, and we had a tochnit, we had a routine, we had a, a whole game plan, day-to-day, minute-to-minute, planned out of exactly what we're doing and where we're going from early morning to late, late at night, from anything and everything you could imagine was on that, was on that tour. And we rented this little bus and we did it together, and wow. But let me just tell you the first night. The night of the day that we landed just that first night. I could tell you stories about this trip for 19 classes, but just that first night. Because you see, right when we pulled into Yerushalayim from the airport, everybody in the van went quiet. They all looked at each other. We're here. We're actually here. We couldn't believe it. And I don't know about them, but me, under my breath, I was muttering, Thank you, Hashem. You gave us this opportunity to get here and to get here together as one. From that minute on, we began to see a si'ata dishmaya that I'm telling you in years we have never seen. It was as if heaven was giving us a wink. Welcome home. We waited for you, Magen Abraham. We waited for you guys to come for so long. You're finally here. Welcome home. All doors are opened in front of you. And that's exactly what took place. That night, the first night, we decided, after going to the Kotel, we decided we were going to go to the tunnels underneath the Kotel. And we were going to walk down that long, narrow tunnel. And we were going to listen to, they had this great tour guide, a religious guy, a South African guy, and was because of his South African accent and made everything look exciting, you know. It's like, I couldn't even, I couldn't even do it if I tried. But nonetheless, it sounded so Hollywood-like, you know. And he was telling us about every stone and the borders, and this is from the Herodian period. And, you know, the, and it was great. It was, it was like, wow, this guy knew it all. This guy knew it all. And then finally, the moment of truth. We came down that long, narrow tunnel, and we stopped, and we looked to our right, and there on the wall was this sign. You are now standing opposite the Holy of Holies. And everybody just went quiet. We couldn't believe it. Do you know where we're standing? (laughs) We're standing maybe, according to the tour guide, 10 to 12 feet away from the Kodesh HaKodashim. We are standing 10 to 12 feet away from the spot that the holiest Jew on earth, the Kohen Gadol himself, was only allowed entry once a year to the Kodesh HaKodashim on the holiest day of the year, on Yom HaKippurim. And we're standing there. We're standing 10 to 12 feet away from the spot that Abraham brought Yitzchak Avinu on the Akedat Yitzchak. We're standing on the stones. We're here. I couldn't believe it. Guys just opened up Tehillim. There was no time to talk. There was no time to schmooze. This wasn't a joking around moment. Everyone got very serious very quickly and they opened up the Tehillims and they started to say Tehillim from their hearts. And the tears and the crying, it was unbelievable to watch. These guys aren't criers, the rabbi is. But these guys are not criers. They got so emotionally moved. Where am I standing? Look where I am. 
It was right after that that they made their way further down the tunnel, but not me. That moment, something hit me so hard. I felt such a, a connection at that moment to Borei Olam. You know, it's that, you know, those moments that you get such an inspiration, you feel like your back is rubbing up against the clouds. It was that moment. I said to myself, you know, I know that there is that little bit Knesset of the Mikubalim that is stationed right next to the Kodesh HaKodashim, down here by the tunnels, and there's a door down here that leads to that little private Bet Knesset. And they don't allow anybody to go down there. The only guy that has the key to that little private Bet Knesset built for these Mikubalim that pray there only once a day, only by sunrise, only by Vatikin in the morning, and that's it. They lock up the room, they don't let anybody in. You've got to know protexia, protexia, protexia to know the right guy the, just to be able to get him to look. I knew it was down here somewhere. I said to myself, I'm going to find that room. I'm going to find that room. My guys didn't pray our beat yet. What would that be? The cherry on top of this experience. If I could find that room. Ah, but the door is locked and bolted and closed like Fort Knox. Uh, we'll deal with that. But let me find the room. I start walking up and down the left side of the wall, knowing that it was there somewhere. And only a few feet away, I found it. With three steps, walking up to this metal door. There it was. And on big letters on top, it says, do not enter. It's prati, private room. Don't come near here. Ladies. I know you're going to think this is a story, and that's okay. But lucky for me, I have 20 witnesses to prove this one. I put my hand on the knob of that door, and I said, Evishta, Borei Olam, please. I'm standing here by Shar Hashamayim. I'm standing here opposite Kodesh HaKodashim. Do you know what it would mean to these guys if we can pray in our beat here? Please. In the hallway, in the tunnel, there's no place to pray. It's very tight. You can't pray our beat there. But, but please, ladies, I'm telling you, Emmet. I turned the knob. The door popped open like nothing. I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. I looked down the hallway because I was, I was gasping for it. Oh, my God, I felt like I won a lottery. I looked down the hallway, and I gave a whistle. Guys! Get over here! They're looking at me from all the way down the tunnel like, what the, What happened to the rabbi? He got out of his mind! So they come running down the tunnel. Now, you know, this tunnel is so narrow that most people are going one direction. Good luck trying to come the opposite direction. But these guys were squeezing through, dodging different tours with different people, you know, like hot stuff coming through. You know, they, they were trying to dodge each and out. They came all the way down the tunnel, right back to where I was. And I said, what's going on? I said, look! They looked inside and I said, you remember, I told you guys about that special Beknesset they built for Mikubalim only, right next to the Kodesh HaKodashim. They said, yeah, it's opened. Get everybody in here now before they lock it up and they throw us out, quick. We got all the guys together. We brought them inside this little Beknesset. This was uh, an eerie room. We felt something there very special. Maybe it was in our heads. Or maybe it was in our hearts. I don't care. We felt it. And we stood together. And I turned to Leon Hamra, who Hashem blessed him 
with a voice of voices. Like all the Hamras, Hashem should bless them, all of them, for the great work that they do for the community, and especially their father. Hashem should send them Arichut Yamim Mishanim. I turned to Leon and I said to him, Leon, you are our Yom Kippur Hazan. We need a Kaddish now that's going to shake the heavens. I didn't have to say another word. He got up there. He gave a Kaddish. It was the Kaddish of Kippur. And he broke in middle of the Kaddish down crying. And when the Hazan breaks down, everybody in the room broke to little tiny pieces. I am telling you, ladies, that was a moment of Teshuvah. That was a moment of Kiddushah. And we were home, right where we belonged. Every single one of these guys will tell you how they'll never forget that Kaddish, that Arbit, and that night. And I know it. Because generally the rabbi is the uh, last guy to finish Amidah. You know, they usually wait for me to finish. I was the first guy to finish Amidah. It's embarrassing to say, I was the first guy. And I have a long, I was the first guy to finish Amidah that night. All the guys went on and on. They didn't want to let go. They didn't want to let go. They didn't want to let go. 35, 45 minute Amidah. They were going strong. A ni'ilah we haven't seen like that. But at that moment, yeah. When you're home, you're home. Veha'aretz tovahi. Me'od, me'od. There's no place like her in the world. It's amazing. Rav Pam, Zechit Sadiq Lebracha, the Rosh HaYeshiva of Torah V'da'at, he was known, he was known to tell people how, he says, the way he said it was, it used to hurt his ears when people would come back from Eretz Yisrael and he would ask them, so, how was your trip? And they would say, well, you know, the weather wasn't that great and it was hot or it was raining. Rapam looked at them like, you're talking about Eretz Yisrael? You're talking about Yerushalayim, our Kala, our bride. The rain? The weather, that's the way you talk about her. He said it used to hurt his ears. That's not the way you talk about our love, about our land, about our bride. The Gemara in Masechet Megillah says a fascinating story. The Gemara tells us that way back when, before they actually made the system of the Haftarot, as we read it, Shabbat after Shabbat, Parasha after Parasha, once upon a time, the Gemara Megillah tells us, that they read the Haftarah, but because the seder wasn't made yet, when the guy that went up to get Maftir, he would read the Haftarah of his choice. It was up to you to read any Haftarah you wanted. Anything you wanted, you read. So the Gemara Megillah says that someone went up, Maftir, and then when it came time to read Haftarah, he chose to read a Haftarah that spoke about the sins of Yerushalayim. And who was sitting there? Rabbi Le'ezer. Rabbi Le'ezer got so angry. From all the haftarot to read, you decided to read the one that speaks about the Averot of Jerusalem? Rabbi Le'ezer got up and stopped him. And he told him, before you start speaking about her, meaning Yerushalayim, first look into the lineage of your own mother. Very strong words. And he made the man sit down. 
The Gimana wanted to know, was that prophecy? Was that Ruach HaKodesh? How did Rebbe Lezer know? Because sure enough, guess what? They looked into the lineage of this man's mother and they found it to be not so kosher. So they said, Rebbe, how did you, how did you know? Rebbe Lezer said, no, 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 no. Explains the Mepharshim over there. It wasn't Ruach HaKodesh. It was simply, don't you dare talk about my fiancé like that. If you feel for her in the way that you properly feel for her, you would never come to speak words like that. This is our fiancé. This is our love. And if there's a disconnect over there for some reason that you can bring yourself to talk that way about Yushalayim, there must be a disconnect in your own lineage. Otherwise, you would feel the feelings that we all feel about her. And that's how he knew that maybe there was something wrong from where he came from. Don't speak about her like that. That's our bride. That's our Yerushalayim. That's our Eretz Yisrael. And you know, now it really means a lot. And it makes a lot of sense. In the Birkat Amazon, if you take a good look in the second paragraph of Nodelecha, we say over there, Eretz, Chemda, Tova, Urchava. We talk about the attributes of Eretz Yisrael. But then right after that, what do we say? Hey, wait one second. Which one came first, the chicken or the egg? We went to Eretz Yisrael before we got out of Egypt? No. We got out of Egypt first, and then we went to Eretz Yisrael. So how come in Birkat Amazon we first talk about Eretz Yisrael and her beauty, and only after that we speak about that Hashem took us out of Egypt? It happened the other way. Answers the Khatam Sofer, an amazing answer. He says, take a good look. You'll see that when the brothers of Yosef came down to Egypt, do you know what they told Paro? They told Paro, relax. Lagur Ba'aretz Banu. We only came to live temporarily. Like we said in the Haggadah this past Pesach. Melamed, Shelo Yarad we didn't come to permanently live in Egypt, only to live temporarily. And it's because of that, writes the Khatam Sofer, that they were still so connected to Eretz Yisrael, that their whole living in Egypt was only a temporary living. That's why Egypt could not lay a finger on the brothers of Yosef. Take a good look. When did the slavery actually begin? The slavery began, Vayamot Yosef, Vechol Echav, Vechol Hador Hahu. That's when it started. Only when the last of the brothers of Yosef died, which was who? Levi. When Levi, the last of Yosef's brothers, died, only after that the slavery began. How come? How come did they put him to slavery while Yosef's brothers were still alive? And the answer is Khatam Sofer, because as long as the Yosef's brothers were still alive, we were still connected to Israel. And when, as long as we're connected to Eretz Yisrael, nobody can touch us. But once the last of the old generation passed away, the ones that were still connected to Israel, and now the next generation, the ones that grew up in Egypt, that they actually felt Egyptian. They didn't feel that connection for Eretz Yisrael anymore. Oh, you're Egyptian. If that's the case, 
you're under the jurisdiction of Egypt. Now they can throw you into slavery. Now, sure enough, the Sheobud begins. Writes the Khatam Sofer, one of the greatest merits that we had to get out of Egypt was because we were on our way to Eretz Yisrael. And that's the reason why when the Meraglim came along and they put that poison into us, that disconnect of our love to Eretz Yisrael, what they didn't realize was they hurt our connection and our zichut of Eretz Yisrael in such a disconnected way that they set up the little blocks for history later to be disconnected again from Eretz Yisrael by the destruction of Bayit Rishon and by the destruction of Bayit Sheni. Sure enough, back into the desert we went as wanderers, as the wandering Jew. Eretz Yisrael is a great zichut, and our love for her is a tremendous zichut for Klal Yisrael to be zocheh, to go back to her. To go back to her when? You want to hear something incredible? I'm sure everybody here might have once gone to Kever Rachel. And you walk into Kever Rachel and there on the wall is chiseled the words, Kol berama nishma, nechi bichi tamrurim, Rachel nevaka al baneha. And then finally, till the end of the Pasuk, v'shavu banim ligvulam. Hashem promised Rachel imenu, like the Midrash and Echa tells us, Rachel, because of you, I promise you, I'm going to bring your children back to Eretz Yisrael. But you know, that's funny. Because everybody talks about this prophecy, this Midrash, that Hashem said to Rachel Imenu. But you know, this exact same thing, Hashem promised to five other Nevi'im, starting with Moshe Rabbeinu. Hashem promised Moshe Rabbeinu that we will be brought back to Eretz Yisrael. Hashem promised to many of the Nevi'im that we're going to be brought back to Eretz Yisrael. So what's so special about the promise to Rachel? Says the Khatam Sofer, you know what the answer is? Yes, many of the prophets were promised that we're going to be brought back to Eretz Yisrael. When? When Mashiach comes. But Hashem's promise to Rachel was unique that I'm going to bring the Jewish people back to Eretz Yisrael even before Mashiach comes. And that is the renaissance that we're watching and experiencing today. The Jews of France, the Jews of all over Europe, how literally now they're coming in droves. The anti-Semitism today in Europe is beyond imagination. It's the stick that's giving us the little pat on the back. Get out! Go back to home. And it's going to continue one by one. And that was the promise. Why is it unique? Because this was talking about even before Mashiach comes. The days that we're even experiencing right now. And as with this, I just want to end off and tell you something, ladies. I could never say this. Believe me, I'm a nothing and a nobody. But Khatam Sofer writes this. And the Khatam Sofer was a har of a giant, of a giant beyond any of our imaginations. And he writes in his true vote something that's out of this world. There was the famous earthquake in Tzvat that almost destroyed the entire mystical city of Tzvat. And today, 
You can't miss it. If you go to Tzfat today, and everyone who does go to Tzfat, they go to the old cemetery. The cemetery where, well, you know, it's not who's buried there, it's who isn't buried there. The Arizal is buried there. The Ramak is buried there. The Baal Chadodi is buried there. Rabbi Yosef Cairo, Maran Shulchan Aruch is buried there. Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yair, the Alshich HaKadosh. I mean, you can't imagine who's buried in this cemetery. But yet, the cemetery is completely downward slope. How did that happen? Who would go and build and bury such great people off the side of a sloped, steep mountain? And the answer is they weren't buried like that. Originally, the old cemetery of Tzvat was flat, like every cemetery. But then came the famous earthquake. And the avalanches of rock and stone came crushing down. And it completely put the city of Tzvat on the rubble, including the cemetery. And that's why today, when you go to that cemetery, by the mikveh of the Arizal, and the burial of the Arizal, you'll see that it's completely sloped downwards. It's very steep. Today we're lucky. I remember before they built those little wooden pathways that take you down with the banisters of metal to hold on to. But way before that, I remember there was none of that. You just had to brave it and go down the mountain step by step without losing your balance, without stepping, God forbid, on any of the kvarim, because it was very steep and you had to do it alone. Today they made it a path for you and that's great. But this was the famous earthquake of the mystical city of Tzvat. Almost destroyed the whole city. Comes the Hatam Sofer and he asks the question that nobody is ready to ask. Why did the earthquake happen? We don't ask these questions. Every time we ask why, the answer is Hashem. But the Hatam Sofer, believe me, he has the same answer, but he wants to give us a little bit more detail because he is much closer hooked up, so to speak. Why did the earthquake of Tzvat happen? Asked the Khatam Sofer. Writes the Khatam Sofer in his Truvot. The earthquake was caused by Yerushalayim. The jealousy that Yerushalayim experienced. Watching droves and droves of Jewish people leaving her and going up to Tzvat going up to Meron, going up to the Rajbi, going up to the city of, the mystical city of Tzvat. She became so hurt. Khatam Sofer writes it. Khatam Sofer writes that the Kinat Yerushalayim garma l'ri'idat ha'aretz, the jealousy of our bride, it caused the earthquake in Tzvat to almost destroy the entire city. Because she's our bride. She's our fiance. And ladies, let's call it the way it is. Everybody and anybody here will agree with me. Anybody's fiance that would get wind that her potential husband to be would have eyes for anyone else but her, that girl would go and slit the other girl's throat. Let's 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 say it the way it is. Yushalayim caused the earthquake. Yushalayim was hurting, was jealous. I'm your bride. Why are you abandoning me? I, I, I'm your fiance. Why are you going to other places? Come to me. You belong with me. And because of that, Khatam Sofer writes, the rest is history. Ladies, 
if this was the reaction of Yerushalayim crying out in hurt, why did you abandon me to go to other holy cities? Why didn't you come to your bride? How does Yerushalayim feel when we go to those tropical islands on vacation? How does Yerushalayim feel when we go to the Bahamas with the Bahamas? How does she feel? You have two weeks vacation? You're spending all that money anyways? Come home to me. We belong together. I'm your bride. I'm your fiance. I'm the Efenov, Mesos Kol Haaretz, Harzion. That's me. I'm the one of Akedat Yitzchak. I'm the one of Kodesh Hakodashim. I'm the one of Kever Rachel. Where are you going? Why don't you come to me? Bring your kids home to me. How do you think she feels on all those cruises and all those vacations? She cries up, what about me? I'm your betrothed. I'm the one you're destined for. And yet you're going to see everybody but, but me. And how does she feel when our young men and young ladies come out of high school and they have that first opportunity to, <clears throat> to come out to the world? To be able to go for six months and learn the Kiddushat of Torah Eretz Yisrael and they have that moment, that opportunity that's going to change their lives in such a good way and it refines them and it puts them together and it gives them a maturity to grow up with. And they start life on the right leg and they can get out of this country and they can detox. They can see there's more to life than another Lexus and another Lexus and another Lexus. And oh my God, look at this house. And oh my God, look at that house. And oh my God. And another dollar, and another dollar. I need more, and I need more, and I need more. And then finally they get out of here and they go to a country that's so simple. And they see people living with such a real happiness, with such a purity, with such a holiness. And they taste the taste of Torah like they've never tasted before. And Yerushalayim says, send them to me. Send them to me. Before you send them out to college, send them to me. You're going to let them go with the Abid? Let them come to me first. Don't choose the Abid in the colleges over me. Let them come to me for six months. How do you think she feels when we say, no, 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 Rabbi. No, I don't want to send them to Israel. Not for me. Not for our kids. Not for our kids. Not for our But this is for our kids, Right? The colleges with, with the Abid and with the Spanioli, that's for our kids. Like a mother told me last week, Rabbi, what's the difference? There's Torah there, there's Torah here. Why should he go learn there? Let him learn here. You know what I told her? Did you ever taste ShopRite Cola? <laughs> Did you ever taste ShopRite Cola? Huh? Ladies, listen up. I want to let you in on a good one here. Go start the coupon clipping, and then you can go out to ShopRite, and you can buy in bulk those cans of ShopRite Cola for almost 11 cents, ladies. But nobody drinks ShopRite Cola, do they? No. No, I don't, I, neither do I. 
and, uh, and, and nobody drinks RC Cola either, do they? But what do you mean? It says Cola, it says Cola, you see, I'm from Brooklyn Cola, right? It says Cola on this can, and it says Cola on the Coke can, so what's the difference? This is Cola, and this is Cola. You know how pathetic you sound? No, you don't want ShopRite Cola, you don't want RC Cola. You want the real thing, don't you? That's what these guys want. They want Torah, the real, real thing. And that's the Torah to Eretz Yisrael. Avir the Yisrael machkim, the ear of Israel, makes you smart, makes you sharp. It cleans you up. It gives you kedushah. And because of that, ladies, I really hope, my birachat to you and to myself, I am davening my heart out these days, asking Hashem to allow me and my family on the going aways of this summer, where we're ready to go everywhere and anywhere in the world, I'm hoping, I'm davening and praying that some miraculous way Hashem can get me and my family to Eretz Yisrael, even just to visit. I don't know, we gotta stop finding those points of mileage or something, but every year Hashem makes a miracle for me and we get there two weeks in August. It would be a great moment to be walking those streets together with you. And like this, we can go up to the Kotel in Vatikin right before sunrise. And we can stand there and we can watch the most eeriest of things. We'll watch the birds. You ever see the birds by the Kotel before Vatikin? What a sight. They're going around, speeding. They're going, flying around in a circle together again and again, faster and faster. And then suddenly, the sun comes over the wall and they stop. Everything stops. It's as if the king has appeared and nothing moves and there isn't a sound. And you feel something going through your bones. Ah, I'm home. And then we go up to Kevin Rachel and we say, Mama Rachel, Ima Rachel, go up, be Yosher for us and is Boreolam for what our families need. Because only you as a mother knows how to cry in front of Boreolam and ask for the great Yeshuot for Klal Yisrael. And after that, we go up north or be Meir Balanes and we stand by the Rambam and we tell him about everything we learned that year. And we go to Rabbi Yosef Cairo and we ask him to help us keep his halachot. What an experience. We should be goel to be there together this summer. Amen. Thank you for listening. This is Rabbi Dovi Ben Shushan from Congregation Magen Abraham. Please tune in every week on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Have a great week. Shabbat Tov.